Log messages are fast, high-volume, unstructured data. Logs are often the source of metrics, alerts, and dashboards, so these critical systems are downstream from a log management system. A log management system needs to be highly available so that a failure in one part of your log management system will not be correlated with the failure of some other part of your system because you're going to be using your logs to triage that system. Users of a log management system are often building tools based off of the query engine of that log management system. For example, I might build a dashboard that gives me a line graph representing the number of times a certain log message is alerting me due to a memory warning. That way, those memory warnings get translated into something that is more visual than a big blob of text. I can write a query to return the instances of those memory warnings as they appear in log messages, and the line graph that gets displayed is a visual representation of that query. A log management system needs to be able to quickly serve users that are querying their logs, whether it's for dashboards or for ad hoc queries to zoom in on a particular log message that indicates something went wrong. When logs are ingested by a log management system, the logs get parsed in a way that can bring some structure to the blob of text that is a raw log message. Some log management systems will then add the log message to an index. An index can allow for very fast lookups of particular types of queries, but an index also has certain constraints, such as processing regular expression queries. Steve Newman is the CEO and founder of Scalar, a log management system that uses a column-oriented data storage system instead of the more conventional index-based log management systems. Today's episode is a great case study in distributed systems trade-offs. Steve talks in great detail about how Scalar maintains high uptime and its system for ingesting logs and serving queries. Before we get started with this episode, I want to mention that we are hiring for a couple roles, including writers and podcaster. If you are interested in those roles or operational roles, we have a number of job listings at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. I'd love to see your application. Steve Newman, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. A lot of fun last time. Yes. Although last time we mostly talked about the engineering of the first version of Google Docs and your experiences at Google, and there were some really great stories there, but we didn't get to talking about Scalar as much as I would have liked. Scalar is the company that you're building around log management. And the topic I want to start with is log management. So log management is the process of taking in logs, indexing them, building metrics around them. This has been a problem that has been open to engineers to solve for a very long time. Why does it continue to be a thriving industry? Why is log management an unsolved problem? The short version is because it's a hard problem and always kind of new frontiers to push forward on. And you know, I think there's you know, at a high level, there's two, two things that make it hard. One is just scale. Often there's massive amounts of data to work with. And ideally, you want to be able to inter, you know, search through that data interactively. So you've got large scale data and you're trying to, to get answers out of it quickly. And the and the other problem is, I might summarize as heterogeneity. You know, we talk about logs, you know, sort of as, you know, one concept, but 
there are lots of different kinds of logs and, you know, not just different formats, but, you know, very different uses. You know, a, a web access log is a very structured thing that is a very regular kind of data that's very standardized across a lot of different environments. An application debugging log is a jumble of very specific messages that have been sort of, you know, thrown together ad hoc. There's nothing organized or coherent about it. It's unique to the particular application and to the engineer or actually, you know, succession of engineers who have who have had a role in creating that. And it's different for every application. You know, this is, it's really lots of different problems. It, you know, do some structured analysis on my very structured web access logs, do some kind of ad hoc exploration through my debugging information. You know, in a single problem session, you may be working with a lot of different logs from a lot of different systems. Every customer or you know, every system has a different situation with a different mix of systems and, and logs and configurations. You know, log management is a whole subfield of its own that has some fundamental difficulties just around scale and performance. But then also, you know, this huge heterogeneity means there's, there's not just one problem to focus on. Yeah, the schema of different logs in different contexts can widely vary. And then there's also heterogeneity in terms of how important different logs are. And you've got all these knobs that you could potentially present to a user and say, hey, do you want to tune this knob? Do you want faster access time? Do you want better indexing? But the user may not even want to configure their log management system. They just want something that works out of the box. And then you have all these questions also in the context of really high velocity like logs just don't ever stop coming <laughs> this is constant data yeah so if i'm an engineer building a new startup i think we've pretty much laid this out but maybe make the the case even stronger why is log management something that i want to buy as a service rather than rolling my own because there are people that still roll their own log management systems yeah, and I th I think there's there's two reasons. One is just the classic, you know, why would you ever not roll your own of any sort? You know, it's just a classic SaaS argument. Uh, you know, focus on your core competency. Let some, you know, let an let a log management expert worry about your log management, and you worry about your business. You know, don't devote engineering resources to building and maintaining it. Don't you know have your own thing that you know you have to train everyone how to use because it's not standard and no one's ever seen it before. So you know the. I don't think there's necessarily anything, you know, I think th those arguments ap apply here and, you know, aren't not really in a different way for log management, just, just kind of the classic SaaS argument. The other thing I think, though, that's interesting is around scale and performance where, you know, it's expensive to provision enough hardware to manage your own logs at high performance. Whereas if you work with a hosted service, at least if it's architected appropriately, there's sort of an economy of scale there because your use of these services tends to be bursty. You know, you're, you're troubleshooting a problem and then you're not. And then the next issue comes up or the next thing or, you know, like so you're going in and out of your log management solution. And even uh, with a large team with, you know, hundreds or thousands of engineers, the usage is still very bursty and inter intermittent. And so there's a real efficiency from pooling together a lot of different uses in a, in a central service rather than having lots of, you know, little islands of uh, individual log management. So if I understand you correctly, when you piggyback on a log management system, presumably that log management system is hosting a lot of people's logs and the access patterns for logs are such that 
you you have a particular type of maybe you want to call it caching or availability of these logs where you know if i'm solving a problem right now i want my recent logs or the logs that are related to a certain topic a certain problem i'm trying to solve i want those logs higher in the cache hierarchy i want to be able to access them faster but if i'm not solving that problem right now I can have those logs on disk and in a place that is not a faster access time. And there are economies of scale to that type of infrastructure is what I'm hearing from you. That's right. And also, and maybe even more importantly, is around the, so that, you know, the storage and, and, you know, RAM and, you know, and different level, you know, higher levels of the cache hierarchy are important, but processing is also very important. Uh, you know, even if you have data in RAM, when you want to go search it or, or query it, that takes a, there's a big burst of processing activity that happens there. You know, for half a second, you're pounding the heck out of a bunch of CPUs, and then the half second is over, your search is done. And for the next seven seconds, maybe you don't need the system at all because you're thinking about what to, where to go next. So that processing capacity is, is also something that can, there's a, there's a lot of efficiency in, in sharing that, where you, know, you have a collection of processing capacity that's constantly turning its attention to whoever needs it you know, in that, literally in that millisecond. What is the process? We, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but this is like a deeply complex topic. The, your infrastructure is all about consuming and indexing and storing logs. Give me a overview of the path of a log message as it gets ingested by Scalar. So it depends a little bit depending on where that's coming from, but let's let's take the most common scenario, which is one of our customers is running some application. That application is writing a log file to disk on the customer's server container or whatever, and our agent is sitting there waiting to pick that up. So the application writes the appends the message to a disk file. Our agent is sitting there tailing that file, so it notices there are new bytes on the end of the file. It, it picks those up throws them into a, a local buffer, and typically about once per second, it will package that buffer up and, and send it off to our backend. From the agent's point of view, it's just throwing that block of data at www.scalar.com. On our end, that goes through a proxy layer and lands at a queue server. Um, this is a, a pretty simple system that we've built that just takes in these little bundles of data that are you know constantly flowing in from, uh, from all over the globe, from all of our various customers' systems. And uh, the purpose of that tier is is really just to smooth out any any little hiccups in the in the main processing stage. So, you know, the data arrives at our end, and we can immediately throw it in the queue, acknowledge it, and the agent knows that its work is done. That log has been that log has been successfully received at at the scalar end. It sits in the queuing layer, uh, typically again just for another one or two seconds, um, and then it goes to uh, what we call a backend node, which is the kind of the heart of our system. This is where the logs are going to be parsed, stored, and held for querying. So everything from the from the ingestion through the querying happens in that backend node. Um, so the, the bundle, and you know, that bundle is whatever new collection of new log messages have arrived at the end of that file in the last second or two. Might be one message, might be 100,000 messages, but that, that bundle arrives at the backend, which parses it, and it's appended into, I think last time we talked a little bit about how we basically have a columnar data storage system that we've built. So if it's a web access log, you've got the IP address, the URL, the status code, all these different fields of the logs become columns on disk. So all of those messages get appended to the relevant columns. Now it's on disk and, and cached in memory on that back end, and it's available for the, the, the next query. I want to walk through some of those stages. So the 
ingest of the logs starts by hitting a proxy layer, and the proxy layer forwards it to this queuing layer. And you said you wrote your own queuing layer. Is it is it on top of some kind of queuing system, like a Redis queue or a Kafka queue or something, or completely written from scratch? Uh, completely written from scratch. And the truth is, it was a fairly small project. And the reason it was a small project is, you know, we have very, very specific, fairly straightforward requirements. But the other half of it is kind of the the reason we, you know, did chose to write our build our own implementation is to make sure that that we could meet all of those requirements that we had and do it in a very efficient way. Um, one of the reasons it was relatively straightforward is we already had, we have a lower level storage engine that we had already built for the, the backends. It's based on Google's level DB project. So you know, it's a fairly simple storage manager, but it happens to be a very good fit for a queuing system. You, you basically just throw throw the blocks of data into the storage engine and and then you can you know one of the things about a level db style system you know log structured merge style system is it's very efficient at random writes and then it scans uh, and those are the two kinds of data access for a queuing system and some of the properties that we wanted the queuing tier to satisfy other than simple efficiency was it's important that it maintain in order processing within you know so we have lots and lots of streams of data each stream basically represents a log file and it's very important that data within any stream be delivered in order but there you know but you may have an enormous number of streams and they need to not block one another so you need to be able to process different streams in parallel and you know we had specific requirements over kind of where where data comes from and where data goes to which you know which backend nodes uh, any particular log file winds up on, you know, very, very short queuing times and so forth. And it, you know, it was just easy to you know, build a, a simple little layer from scratch that, that would meet all of those requirements. Do you have redundancy at that layer? We do not have storage redundancy. So, you know, data is vulnerable while it's sitting in that layer, but typically it's only there for about one second. But there's, you know, if, if a node fails, then the system routes around that. And, uh, you know, that one second's worth of data is trapped or a few seconds worth of data is trapped until we recover that node. But meanwhile, everything uh, will just start to route around it. Is the recovery, does that need the agent on the client side to be aware and to do some ACK and say, did you receive my last packet of data? Was it fully re- received? And how do you recover from... You know, the process of the agent sending to the queuing system and then a failure occurring at the queuing layer. We have to pull it back out of the queuing layer. So if a queue node is lost irretrievably, then you know that one or two seconds of data that was in that queue, you know, had been already been acknowledged by that queuing layer but not yet delivered on, that data would be at risk. And we've we've thought about building redundancy at that layer, but the, the truth is that a hard failure like that is so rare. And when you multiply, you know, you start to look at the kind of number of nines of, you know, data retention that, you know, that, that you still have there. Uh, it's just, it just hasn't been a, a concern for us. Are those just built on like regular old DC2 nodes or are you yep. using? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And our experience is that the you know, mean time between hard failure of an EC2 node is, is measured in it's a significant number of years. And so... You know, it, it turns into eight or nine nines reliability. You know, if you divide that into the you know one or two second window uh, where data is, is captive in that node, because that's because you're actually writing those logs to disk on on that node. Yep. Yep. SSD. Uh, right. Right. Okay. So you write them to disk, and then even if the machine restarts, it's not problematic. But it would only be problematic if the disk completely failed. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it's just an example of you know trying to be very thoughtful about the trade-offs. Uh, you know, reliability is important. 
but you know nine nines is probably sufficient and you know sometimes something that's sort of theoretically well wait you're only storing one copy of that data but well we're only storing it it's only sitting there for about one second so you know if you take a careful look at the you know sort of the engineering trade-offs then you know sometimes you can you can get away with things in a particular situation that you know, in other contexts might not be as good an idea. And then I was looking at your architecture diagrams. I think that the next phase in the log processing pipeline is that it goes from the queue to, and it gets written to two separate backing stores. Is that right? That's right. So technically three, often we only talk about two. So we, we store, we, it goes to three backing stores, two of which are sort of high-powered nodes uh, with SSDs. Currently, we're using i3.4 extra-large uh, EC2 instances. Those do all the work. They, they're responsible for queries and so forth. We two, two copies is enough for, you know, kind of processing and, and normal healthy mode operation. But, you know, to make sure that the data is, is very durable, we wanted to have a third copy on EBS. And so that's what that third copy is. We often gloss over the third copy because the EBS performance and, and cost performance is not good enough for us to use that in queries. So that third copy is just sort of for emergency purposes and isn't interesting to most of the system, but it does exist. How much cheaper is EBS than SSD? If you look at the price per gigabyte of, of EBS versus you know, take something like an i3 for extra large node. And when you consider the full cost of that node, um, it's a lot higher. Now you're getting a lot, you know, you're also getting a lot of processor and RAM and so forth. But, you know, basically, you know, we would rather arrange our SSD nodes in pairs rather than in triples because it's a, that gives the, doing them in pairs gives us a better ratio of processing and RAM to storage. I guess I'm having trouble understanding. So you have two S. So the the architecture is for the main replica set. The replicas of your like you want three copies of the log data, like the source of truth data, the customer data. Like this is your business, so you need three of them, and you have two of them on SSDs. The two main copies, then you you're you're periodically writing to the third copy so that you have a failover in extreme cases. I didn't quite understand what you were saying about you like to keep the SSDs in pairs because of processing something. You know, basically every byte of SSD storage comes with a lot of RAM and processor attached. You know, you, and so storing three copies on SSD means we need three shares. Of, means we're also paying for you know that much more RAM and CPU, and it's just more than we need. Totally, totally. It makes complete sense. Like a, just as a cost savings mechanism. So I guess we've gotten to from the queuing place to the point of writing to the actual log storage system. What happens in the in that process of, of a write from the queuing system to the storage system? So first of all, that's where we do parsing. And, and by parsing, we mean that stage where we look at this chunk of, of text and start figuring out, okay, these 11 bytes are the, you know, are the HTTP header, and, you know, these 39 bytes are the URL, and these other bytes are the referrer, and so forth. So we pull, you know, we're, this is where we're identifying the, the structured content of the log. So, you know, that, that's a whole, whole system that we can talk about. But, so we do that, and so now we've got, we think of it as just a collection of, of key value pairs. You know, this message had the following text, and it had a field named status, which was 502, and it had a field named referrer, which was whatever, and, and so forth. We take those collection of values, 
and we and this is all happening locally within one EC2 instance, which is that backend node. We've parsed it. We've got this collection of fields, and we append it onto our columnar data store, um, which at a slightly lower level means we have a whole collection of values. You know, one value for the for each field that are getting written to n different places in the key value store, the the level DB like system. So you know, all of the log messages that were in that batch all of the fields in the various messages in that batch, that whole collection of stuff gets written out as, as one database append transaction and winds up in on the SSD and, and also in a memory layer. Um, and then it's, you know, it's immediately available for the, the, the next query that runs. We'll see it. The parsing part is that first step that you mentioned. Parsing, does that require an understanding of the schema of a particular type of log message or or is the parsing phase agnostic of what company and what source the log is coming from it does require some knowledge and you know this is a problem we've been been working on for the whole 6 or 7 years we've we've been uh, in operation and we've gone through a few iterations on how we approach it and at the highest level there's kind of two forks in the road you know you could you could basically take an you know an ml approach or a manual approach and we've actually found that what works best is to is to you know keep a, a person in the loop, define the the kind of the parsing rules manually, and just build a system that makes it really really easy to do. Because if you look at a, a typical log file in practice, it's you know it's hard to define a machine rule that you know can take any random log file and and make a sensible have a sensible idea of, of what to do with it. But when a human being looks at it, more often than they're not, they're they're actually very very simple. You know you've got nine fields and there they are boom 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 with spaces in between or or sometimes it's commas or or it's you know it's a printf message so you've got you know three words that are part of the printf printf template and then you've got your first field and then you've got six more words you know that were from the printf and another so you know it's very very simple just there's some stuff that isn't the field and then there's a field and then there's some more stuff that isn't the field you know error on line line number is a field error message is a field you know, unwrapping stack. So, you know, unwrapping stack is not a field, but the error message right before it is a field. So, you know, it's very easy for a person to look at it and say, okay, you know, here, like these three pieces are fields and the rest of it is just always going to be the same. So we've built a system where there's a little interactive editor where you can, where you can define the rules uh, and the rules kind of classically, when people build systems to allow you to define these parsing rules by hand, they tend to rely on regular expressions. Like you have to create a regular expression for each field of the log. And the data that goes in those fields, whether it's a URL or an email address or an IP address or whatever, you know, tends to be a little bit complicated. But the stuff in between tends to be very simple. You know, between each field, you have a space or you have, you know, these three words from the, from the log message, then it's always those same three words. It tends to be very, very simple. And so we've built a system that's sort of inside out where instead of giving regular expressions for the fields, you give regular expressions for what's in between the fields. And usually those are just trivial. Again, it's just a space character or something. And so we've just gone the route of you know, making that really easy to set up. And then to sort of take advantage of that, we actually put a button in the product that says, build it for me. And that doesn't invoke an AI. It invokes our support team. It just sends a message to the support team. And we've sort of streamlined the workflow. So when you click that button, our support team gets a 
a snap or gets a little sample of your log. Uh, they get any note that, that you know. There's a place for the customer to attach a note if, they, if there's anything they want to say about it, and drops you know on our side it drops us right into a little workflow with that interactive tool. Our customers also have access to the tool, but you know often they don't bother. They just click the button and and we take care of it. And so it's it's not much work for us. And it, and it's frankly a little bit of a hack where you know we get to look like we've done somebody a big favor, uh, but it's you know it's actually not that much work. Yeah, because how many different log schemas is a given company going to have? I mean, well, I guess they could potentially have a lot, but typically you have an engineer and they're working on a service and they're working on that service for like three months and that requires one point of setup for their particular log messages. So I guess it's not a huge... Exactly. Yeah, that, that's really kind of the flavor. Um, and then also a lot of it is just standard. Oh, that's a web access log. Oh, that's a Postgres query log. And, and you know, we've just got all those on the shelf. Okay, cool. So you can get that schema done from a combination of basically human labeling and some aspects of logs that are easier to identify. And an understanding of that schema lets you map out how to ingest, how to parse a log message, and then you parse it into some kind of intermediate data structure, and then you take that intermediate data structure and what, do indexing and stuff on it? Or what's what's next? So this is maybe the thing that people find most surprising about our approaches is we don't do indexing actually. And then, you know, I'm glossing over you know a few details, but the basically the core of the system is like there is no indexing. You know, once we've done that parsing and we lay the data out in columns, that's sort of the most interesting part about what we're doing with the data ingestion time. So we get a batch of you know new messages on the end of your web access log. We parse it out and now you know consider the the referrer column. So we've got the refers for each of these, let's say it was 80 new log messages. So on disk in the area where we're storing the referrer column of this particular log, we're just going to write those 80 URLs out one after the other, you know, boom, boom, just as you know, almost like a, a dumb text file. And that's it. No indexing. And so then if a customer says, you know, find me all my traffic that was referred from Wikipedia, we're basically just going to grep that column, uh, that region of the disk where we've stored all the URLs. Not literally grep, but, you know, our own internal code that's, you know, run, ultimately running the same inner loop pretty much that, uh, that a grep implementation might run. So, so, you know, we don't have an index that can tell us, oh, you know, out of these 3 million log messages, you know, here are the nine that have the word Wikipedia. Um, we have to scan through all million referrers. But it turns out that if, you, if you're streamlined about how you do that and you're not, you know, kind of wading through nine layers of, you know, legacy implementations built on top of one another, um, it actually just doesn't take that long to scan through a, a bunch of data. And we, you know, one, of the, one of the key numbers metrics that we think about is, I can't remember whether I, we got into this at all last time, but one CPU core on our backend system can scan about a gigabyte of data per second. And especially if you're just scanning one column like the refers as opposed to the entire log, uh, you know, a gigabyte is a lot. And, um, and then when you multiply it by thousands of cores, that's the heart of where our performance comes from. So you could parallelize the scan. Exactly. So yeah, the other number that, that we think about is the aggregate performance of the whole cluster, which right now is about 1.5 terabytes per second, meaning we have about 1,500 cores in this cluster. Each one can scan about a gigabyte of data per second. So if a query involves scanning you know, half a terabyte of data, then we can do that in about a third of a second. Your columnar storage system, what are in the column? So a given record, 
is a column, and, and then the column has all of the text of one of the fields in the defined schema. Is that right? Exactly. So again, you know, take the refer field. There'll be a region on the disk that's just URL after URL after URL holding the refers of, you know, and the successive log messages. Or, you know, the status column, there'll be a column that just says, you know, 404, 502, 200, 200, 200, 503. And so I guess that makes sense, because if you think about it from the access pattern of an engineer that's looking through logs, they know the field that they want to be looking at. They they know that I want to find logs where the referrer was www.malware.com. Exactly. Yeah. Off, very often it's like that. You know, find that or find me all my 502s or all my 404s or, you know, everything where the user agent was Googlebot or, you know, like that. Would they ever, are there use cases where they would want to just like, I just want to type in Wikipedia and I want to be able, I want to scan every column of every log message. Yeah. That, that actually happens all the time because people are, I'll say efficient, which, um, <laughs> and I mean it, you know, like, you know, why should right. you bother course, constructing a clever query when you don't, you know, if, if the tool can, can accommodate you. Yeah. You got enough cores. Why not? And so then we just have to scan the whole log, uh, but that's still pretty fast. Uh, you know, you know, so one of the properties of the system we've built, an index based system can always be more efficient for the types of queries that the index was optimized for. But the flip side of that is it can become woefully inefficient for queries that it was not optimized for. And, you know, if you're really relying on, you know, that trick of I've got the keyword index and if you want to look for a keyword, then I'm all set. Then as soon as you're doing something that isn't looking for a keyword, like you're looking for a regular expression or you're or you're doing a numeric comparison. So, you know, show me everything where the time was more than 100 milliseconds. So I need to find 100 or 101 or 102 or 103. And, you know, there's you know, an infinite number of values that should match. Um, and so, you know, using the, the index, keyword index um, suddenly becomes a lot harder. So the system we've built, because it's very simple, you know, it's basically just scan the data and the variations mostly build on, do we have to, sometimes we have to scan all the data and sometimes we only have to scan certain columns. The performance is going to be pretty consistent. So, you know, there's some queries where an index will give you back an answer in one microsecond because you just look up the index, there's only one match, there it is, boom, done. We will never complete a query in one microsecond, but we complete 96% of our queries in one second or, or less. So, you know, rather than trying to just be like absolutely fast on some stuff and then a long tail, we just sort of aim down the middle for everything. Uh, that's a great compromise, because if you think about the regex case, you can parallelize scanning whatever columns you want with a regex, and you contrast that with trying to have a regex hit against an index-based system. How does that even work? Was that, that sounds like it would be slow or it'd be hard or the system's not built for it, right? Exactly. And you know, depending on how clever you are, sometimes you can notice, all right, in the middle of this regex, there's you know these nine characters and it can't match any string unless the string has those nine characters. So I can narrow it down a little bit using the... But ultimately, you're going to have to fetch all the records and, and run the regex on them. And that's what we do is fetch all the records and run the regex on them. But we're highly, highly optimized for that. And in a keyword index based system, that's typically not an optimized path. That's great. That's some really good compromises there. So in terms of the, okay, so if we talked about the parsing, there's not indexing. You just write these columnar called messages to columnar storage. What kinds of failures can occur in that, that parsing 
and columnar preparation and writing process? Are there any frequent failures or frequent challenges in that process? The truth is it's it's generally very reliable. I mean, you can, you know, you can always have a node failure, you know, hardware failure or something at the EC2 level and, you know, one of those nodes vanishes. And that's probably actually the most common failure mode we have. And that's where the pairing up of the backend nodes comes in. Um, and we just flip over to the to the other member of the pair. You know, maybe over time, you know, like there's another category of issue we've had, but, you know, knock on wood, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of kind of stamping these out over, over time are, you know, when you're running a, you know, a large scale system like this with lots of customers and you have very heterogeneous workloads, you know, you run into all the edge cases that you never thought would come up. So, you know, you've got one log message that's 50 kilobytes long, or you've got, you know, a thousand different fields in one log message or, you know, things like that. And, or, or you know, you've got a single log that's generate, you know, that's, you know, getting a megabyte per second appended to it. And overall, there's plenty of capacity, but this one log is trying to squeeze through, one, because it's a single log, it's trying to squeeze through a single backend node. And, you know, that one node, you know, one thread on that one node, you know, can't keep up with the parsing. So, you know, we've kind of had to build, you know, over time, build in the, you know, the safety limits and, and you know, the strategies for splitting, you know, splitting large things up, whether it's a large number of fields or large messages or whatever. So, like, kind of early in our history, those were sort of the interesting things that would happen. But, you know, nowadays, it's, you know, system is, you know, mostly just kind of runs. That's awesome. That's a good, that sounds like a good product to be, uh, <laughs> to be in charge of. Yeah, it's been fun. And, you know, it's, we get to practice what we preach a lot. You know, we monitor the heck out of our own system. You know, it'd be sort of you know, the business we're in, it would be very embarrassing if we were having a problem and we didn't understand why. So, you know, we monitor the heck out of the system and then we, we take advantage of that to, you know, you know, when a problem like, like that would come up, you know, kind of fix the system so that that can never happen again. And we also try to put in a lot of, it's like early warning sign monitoring. So, you know, if there's some buffer where, you know, we like, we assumed early on maybe that there were, and this isn't quite a literal example, but let's say we had assumed early on that no log message would ever have more than a thousand fields. Well, then we'd put in some logging, you know, how many fields are there? And, and we'd put in an alerting rule. So if, if ever a customer has a, has a log with more than 500 fields, let us know so we can go in and think about what to do about it before they've hit the limit rather than after they've hit the limit and it's an active problem. That facet of your product where you use Scalar to monitor Scalar. So you have another instance of Scalar on staging. You've got a staging instance, and that monitors your production cluster. And then you use your production cluster to monitor staging. Is that a circular dependency at all? Are there any problems with with having that set up? So generally, no. The biggest problem, frankly, is it's confusing. So for example, something that will happen is... Now, the staging cluster has significantly more incidence of problems than the production cluster because we're deliberately, you know, using it as the as the guinea pig for for new code. And we don't, you know, we don't provision it as heavily and you know, we, we don't take quite as good care of it. And so it's a not unknown scenario is that the paging cluster will start screaming bloody murder and setting our or sorry, the staging cluster. It's a Freudian slip because the staging cluster will start setting off our pagers frantically claiming that half the production fleet has gone down and you know clearly there's some kind of horrible crisis going on in ec2 and we've got to respond immediately and what's actually happening is the production cluster is absolutely fine but there's some glitch in maybe the queuing layer of the staging cluster 
And the reason it's claiming that all those production nodes are down is that it is failing to process the incoming data from those production nodes. And so, you know, whenever either system sends us an alert complaining about the other system, we have to decide, okay, is that real or is that the crying wolf because, you know, because actually the, you know, the staging cluster is misreading the situation. So even once you know in principle that that's something you need to think about, it it gets a little bit hard to wrap your head around. And also, like, every time I want to learn about the production cluster, I need to log into staging to run the query. Every time I want to learn about staging, I have to log into the production cluster. So it's sort of that confusion is, is the hardest problem we've had. I don't think we've ever in those six years had simultaneous failures of both systems and and there's no particular reason they should because uh you know we push code on different schedules and you know just in general they're they're entirely disconnected systems yeah you talked about the bursty workloads earlier or i guess bursty in terms of customer use cases so if i'm a customer not regularly going or hopefully i'm not working at a company where i have to regularly like here's my uh you know regularly scheduled checking of you know of this particular query i mean i guess you could you would want to do that in terms of dashboarding where you always have you know that that's just a constant workload if you have if you've built a dashboard within scalar and you've got a query that's basically constantly running against it, but I don't know, we can get into engineering of dashboards. But if, how bursty is the consumption of use, usage across different users on your infrastructure? Is it bursty product-wide or just like by customer? Mostly by customer. So, I mean, you know, certainly within an, within an individual customer can be very bursty. You know, if they, you know, a classic scenario would be, you know, if they're having some big problem then whether it's an infrastructure problem or they've pushed a bad code release or whatever, or, you know, and this is a real example we've seen happen, you know, some of our customers are, are e-commerce sites and on Black Friday, they, you know, their traffic may octuple. So first of all, that just means they're sending us eight times as much log data, but also, you know, that's probably stressing their system out and, you know, they're, they're all hands on deck at their end and, you know, suddenly all of their engineers are logging to Scalar and running and different queries, you know, all intermixed. So at the individual customer level, it's very bursty. But we have a wide variety of customers. They're not all e-commerce sites. They're not all located in the same geographic regions, so they have different business hours. And also, by the same token, if there's, you know, say there's an AWS infrastructure issue, that may affect a bunch of our customers, but not all of them because they're not all in the same regions or not all of their infrastructure is in the same region. So, you know, the, the overall set of customers that we have, they're all over the world, they're in all different businesses and so forth, and it tends to even out pretty well. You know, so for example, on Black Friday, our traffic, you know, some of our customers are, you know, octupling. Our overall traffic might go up by 20 or 30%. How does capacity planning or strategic buying of infrastructure, does that fit into your work at all? It does. You know, the infrastructure isn't cheap. And so that's something we need to monitor closely. This is where that, you know, heterogeneity across customers helps us a lot. So the, you know, the processing load tends to even out pretty well. And storage load, you know, just how much data are we receiving and having to store, you know, sort of by definition, that can't change on a dime. You can't, you know, in a one-day period, suddenly be suddenly have twice as much accumulated data. So we're able to just sort of watch the trends and, and be reactive. Oh, you know, it looks like, you know, we've closed some deals or some of our customers are growing or whatever. You know, let's add uh, you know, another 10 pairs of back-end nodes. You know, it hasn't been a difficult problem. We just sort of do the straightforward, straightforward thing. Straightforward thing. There are some vendors of products that help do cost management and how to buy infrastructure at the right time. Is that is that at all something that's like hard to do? Like, does it get into the world of 
you know, like automated trading where you have to be snapping up the right instances that are available and stuff like that? Or is that just not a concern for you? For us, it's it's not much of a concern. And, and I think that boils down to the fact that at an architectural block diagram level, our system is actually pretty simple. You know, we only have about three or four kinds of nodes and the workload doesn't swing around too drastically because it's this mix of all these different workloads. And so my intuition would be that those products become interesting when the system is, you know, has, is too complicated for one person to keep track of. And also the organization is too complicated for there to be any one person who has a good picture of everything. And so that's when you need a you know, machine keeping an eye out for you. But we're just not at that level of complexity yet. I want to talk about the business a little bit. I, I had this conversation with an investor a while ago, and it's just stuck with me because it was it contained a simple truth that I just hadn't really considered. But he was talking about investing in, uh, I think it was a monitoring business. And I was like, why would you want to invest in a monitoring business? It's like not winner take all. You know, you, you just have a dogfight for customers and, there, and there's tons of monitoring. There's not really network effects, except the customers kind of talk to each other. Or maybe you have like an integrations thing, a network effect. But in actuality, there's a lot of winners. So it's, you know, it's not necessarily a problematic investment because you just have to get some requisite number of customers and you have good economics for every customer. And log management is kind of like that. So I'm fascinated by these businesses like monitoring businesses and log management businesses because it seems like every year there's a new suite of them and they all do fine as long as they have a decent project pro- uh, product and they get some customers. So how do you think about that widely variable multi-competitor landscape? Or do you, do you think of yourself as having some clear differentiator or does it just come down to marketing? Now that you've got the product so well-tuned and it, it works really well, what's your process of differentiating? Yeah, so it's a great question. And um, and this is actually a, a question that we get asked a lot, like, hey, you know, isn't this a really crowded market? You know, why did why did you want to come here? I guess, you know, the answer connects to the, the question of differentiation. It really doesn't feel crowded to us because our key differentiation has always been the performance and usability of the system. You know, we've been talking a lot about how the system is built. And, you know, ultimately, the main reason we took this whole approach, we were not using in keyword indexes and so forth, you know, that made, that was a lot more work for us to build this thing. We couldn't just, you know, slap down on an Elasticsearch layer and start building on top of that. We had to do all that extra work. But what it gave us is this interactive performance, you know, that, you know, 96% of queries run in less than one second. What that means to the user is that, it feels interactive. It feels there's sort of a, a lightness to the tool where it's like Google search. You just sort of go in and poke at it. You try this, you try that. You don't have to get emotionally invested in each query or let me make sure I've framed, let me think carefully about exactly what question I want to ask because it's going to cost me five minutes to ask it. You, know, you just sort of go in there and flail. And that draws people into the product a lot more. It makes it feel easier to use um, and easier to learn because you're not really punished for your early mistakes where you, you know, haven't quite learned the query language or you don't just haven't quite learned how to think about, you know, what do you want to actually find in the logs. And so, you know, that's been our key differentiation is the the performance and the ease of use. And we've we've done a lot of work around the UI design to make this easier to use. It's sort of boring to talk about. It's a lot more interesting to show, but so I don't always talk about it so much, but I talked about all the iteration we did on our parsing engine because we've dealt with so many different logs over the years. We've also done a lot of iteration on the user interface so that people don't really have to learn a query language 
to use the product. You can just sort of click on things and drill down and the query gets built up for you. And that again, and that also relies on the speed of the query engine. You know, we, we build that, that UI is backed by the fact that we can run a lot of sort of speculative queries. Oh, let me just do a bunch of analysis around the set of, on the fly, around this set of logs the customer is looking at and give them a bunch of things to click on and drill down. And so the, to get to your question, you know, the, the differentiation that gives us is that just a lot faster and easier to use. And, and what we find is people actually do use it a lot more. So, you know, sometimes log, log management tools will just sort of gather dust on a shelf because it's you know kind of slow and kind of hard to learn. And so that's our differentiation. And it's pretty consistent across all the competition. We don't have to say, you know, well, against these products, we compete on speed. But against those products, we compete because we have this feature. It's just been kind of simple for us. It's all about speed and, and ease of use against the, against the field. I had a show fairly recently with Fangen from Imply, which is built on the Druid database. And have you looked at that system at all? No, I mean, I've heard of it, but I can't can't claim to be an expert. Yeah, it was interesting talking about him about differentiating in this field. What I wonder is what you, because we didn't even talk about dashboarding very much, but when you think about applications that you could potentially build on that, that data storage, so it sounds like really the moat that you've built is that, that ability to scan you know, you just the columnar records, the ability to scan, the ability to parallelize that scan. I can't imagine that code was easy to write. Like, that's probably some stuff that was hard to write. Are there other applications that could be built on that kind of storage layer? Probably so. And we, we really have not explored that and don't intend to explore it, you know, on our planning horizon because, you know, there's a lot more to, to a product than just that. But I think fundamentally, the, you know, where, where this engine we've built is applicable and you know one of the important parts about it we've talked less about this but you know the fact that it is multi-tenant the fact that we're able to share all that horsepower across a lot of different customers there's a whole management layer we've had to build there to make sure you know basically to make sure that's not abused uh, deliberately or inadvertently so there's a you know, whole management layer to make sure that you know all our customers can play nice in one big shared cluster what that then enables is you know any situation where you have large amounts of data it's kind of the data is heterogeneous or the questions that are being asked of it are heterogeneous. So you can't just define your one clever index and, and make the problem go away. And where the usage is, is bursty, which typically I think means it's an internal tool rather than a customer facing tool. So, you know, you look at a big e-commerce site, the engine that drives their shopping cart is used by tens, hundreds of millions of people. It's not bursty. It's just getting pounded on 24 hours a day. But that same e-commerce site, their internal tools, whether it's, you know, log management or, you know, business intelligence, like user behavior analysis, whatever, anything that's an internal tool, it's being used by, you know, hundreds or thousands of people instead of millions of people, is going to have a, a more bursty access pattern. So, I, you know, I think what we build is interesting across, you know, that those kinds of workloads. But there's so much that goes into, you know, building the whole product and what kinds of data come in and what kinds of visualizations do you want around it and so forth. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of sticking to our knitting there. Where we are starting to look is at other kinds of same customer, you know, the engineering team, other kinds of data besides logs that those teams work with you know, distributed traces and, and you know, error reports and, and other things like that. You know, I think our, our engine is very suited to that. And a lot of what we've built in the product, uh, you know, in terms of visualization tools and so forth, all carries across. And so that, that's something that we're going to be looking at. 
That's cool. So the access patterns for distributed traces and error error logs, you you think of those as as very similar to the log message access pattern. Exactly. Okay. Well, I know we're near the end of our time. Is there is there anything else you want to add about the company? I think we've we've really covered a, a lot. I know there's certainly more we could have talked about. Yeah, you know, without sort of opening a, a whole new topic. Actually, so one thing I'll I'll just mention briefly. Uh, referred a couple of times to dashboards. I just want to mention um, there is a whole other side to the back end that we haven't talked about, which is around designed for what we call repetitive queries. So that's a dashboard or an alerting rule. You know, every 60 seconds, check the error rate of this system, check the latency of that system. And so there are these features that lead to the same query being evaluated over and over and over and over again, and in huge numbers, actually. So for example, you know, we have some customers with thousands and thousands of alerting rules. We evaluate each of those 60, sorry, once every 60 seconds. So you know, across our entire set of customers, it becomes, I don't know, hundreds or probably thousands of queries per second, 24 hours a day. We have a whole other half of the back end that's built for that, which is basically a time series database where for each one of those repetitive queries in database terms, you can think of it as a materialized view. We build, we pre-calculate the result of every one of those repetitive queries and in real time, and when we store those in this time series database and in real time as, as new events are arriving, we evaluate every event against every one of those repetitive queries and incrementally update the time series. There's a, a decision tree engine we've built that, that optimizes those evaluations. So that's another fun piece of technology that, that we had to build to drive this. And you know, that maybe leads to, you know, one thing, one thing I, I, I like to say about Scalar is it's been really fun for us because the engineering matters. You know, our customers, you know, we, we do stuff on the engineering side, the, you know, the query performance, building this, you know, other engine for the repetitive queries. You know, we do the, that interesting engineering work and it actually matters and it, it does something that the customer cares about. You know, I think that's been a, a theme of this business from the beginning is we found this nice problem domain where the engineering does matter. Yeah, well, that is, that is interesting. The, that way of architecting it where you just, along with the ingest process and the transformation to a columnar format, you just say, hey, by the way, also check this new log message against any standing queries that correspond to dashboards that might need to be updated and integrate that log message with the records there. And then you update the time series database table that corresponds to the dashboard and voila, you've got a dashboarding solution. Yep. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for coming back on the show. There's, we talked about a lot, and I think there's a lot more we could have covered. We didn't even get, as far as the business side of things, competing with cloud provider products. We did a show recently with about Google's stack driver thing. And so, it's, I don't know, it's interesting that you, you're, you know, you're competing with these light steps and the data dogs, and then also the major cloud providers now. So the competitive environment is also quite interesting, but obviously not the complete focus of the show. Yep. Does, yeah, interesting is a good word, though. Yeah, it does keep us on our toes. Cool. Well, Steve, thanks for coming on the show, and I look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. Okay, thank you. Look forward to it. Wow.